There's a picture on the screen here, and it shows a vase that my wife bought for me. And now, if you know anything about me, you know that I'm a klutz. And so, as you look at this vase, you might be saying to yourself, Bruce, what did you do to it? It looks like it's been cracked and repaired numerous times. In fact, there's even some missing pieces. Well, I'm here to tell you it's not my fault. I didn't break it. The vase that you see there was created exactly as we see it. Created that way by intention, by a potter named Carol Walliver. When I first saw that vase on display at an exhibition, I was very intrigued. And so I asked Carol, as an artist and as a woman of faith, what message was she trying to send through this unique piece? And she told me that from her perspective, this vase represents one way to understand what it means to be a believer. She said, we all come to God broken and cracked by life. And in his own unique and mysterious ways, our loving God mends us. He puts the pieces back together. He heals us. And yet... In this life, he never makes us perfect. Scars and imperfections remain. And in some of us, the cracks just are more visible than in others. I really like this vase. And I keep it in my office to remind me that I am a broken person living in a broken world. And so are you. That's the reality. We live in a world where emotional wounds and relational hurts and physical injuries are simply a normal part of life. And sometimes you and I experience brokenness through no fault of our own. And sometimes we experience it as a direct result of our own attitudes and actions. But whatever the causes, we get broken and beat up by life. What we need to understand, though, is God always is there. He's always ready to mend and to heal. And so for me, the reality is this. Yes, I have been broken, but I've also been mended by a loving God. Even though I've been mended, though, I've still got some scars. still got some cracks. And so do you. And the reality of that very common experience is on full display in the Bible. For the next few weeks, we want to explore what it means to be broken and mended by God so that we can get a better understanding of how He might be working in our lives. And this morning, we're going to begin with the story of a young Jewish man named Mephibosheth. That's a mouthful. Try and get your tongue around that Mephibosheth. And this poor guy experiences far more tragedy than anyone ever should have to endure. The loss of his parents, the loss of the use of his feet, the loss of his self-respect. His life seems empty, his life seems worthless, and he is in desperate need of mending, the kind of mending that our loving God loves to provide. And how does God do that? He prompts King David to act. David becomes the means by which God mends the life of a very broken young man. 
And we discover this story in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. What we just read is the beginning of an amazing story. A story that finds its roots in a very deep relationship that King David had with a man named Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of King Saul, who happened to be David's predecessor as king. And as young men, David and Jonathan made a pledge to each other. They pledged that they would be more than friends. They would be like brothers. And they bound themselves to this promise as a covenant. It was a holy vow before God. And they made that vow binding on themselves and on their descendants. And now by the time of our story, many years have passed. Saul and Jonathan both are dead. David's been focused on defeating his enemies and establishing himself as king, so he's been a bit preoccupied. Over the years, though, he's never forgotten his vow. And now he decides it's time to act. So he learns about this man named Ziba who used to serve King Saul and he's kept up with the family and he knows that Jonathan has a son who could use some help. And I find it fascinating that Ziba, in referring to this young man, doesn't even mention his name. He simply says he's lame in both feet. It's as if his disability is his most defining characteristic. And it occurs to me that if we're not careful, we can make that same mistake. We need to never forget that human beings are more than their disabilities. Well, now as we're going to learn in just a moment, the son of Jonathan is named Mephibosheth. And I've been practicing all week and I keep messing up that name. So other than when I read the Bible passage... I'm not going to use it. I'm going to give him the nickname of Bo, because I can handle Bo. And the fact is, Bo has had a very rough life. As a young boy, he was cared for by a nurse, because his mother wasn't around. His father, Jonathan, is a soldier, which means he's absent from home a lot. So think about that. A nurse and a semi-absent father. Not the best home life for a young kid. And then when Bo is just five years old, he has absolutely the worst day of his life. His grandfather, King Saul, and his father, Jonathan, and two of his uncles all die in the same battle on the same day. 
When Bo's nurse gets that news, she is understandably afraid. You see, with Saul dead, a new king's going to take over, and it's customary for new kings to kill the male descendants of the previous king to eliminate any threat of a rebellion. The nurse doesn't know anything about this vow between David and Jonathan, so she assumes Bo's life is in danger. And she takes the child and she flees for safety. And tragedy strikes. As she's running away, she trips, she falls, and Bo is badly hurt. His spine evidently is damaged because he becomes paralyzed in his feet. If you think about it, that is just heartbreaking. Here's a caring nurse trying hard to do the right thing, and tragedy results for the young man under her care. It's just not fair. And yet, it's the kind of thing that happens in our broken world. And because of this, in one horrible day, Bo's life is turned upside down. For safety, he's moved away from Jerusalem, and a man named Maker provides him with food and housing in a little, little town called Lodabar. Bo's basically living in exile, and Lodabar isn't much of a place. In fact, it's, it's known mostly for what it lacks rather than what it has. Lodabar has virtually no pasture land, which makes it an undesirable place to live in a culture where tending sheep and goats is a vital part of the economy and essential for life. Lodabar is not a place to thrive. It's a place to hide out. So Bo is a broken boy, and he becomes a broken man. He's lame. He's isolated. No family, few friends, nothing productive to do. And not only is he cut off from society, as he grows up, he, he would be told that it's really not safe to go to Jerusalem, which means he can't go to the tabernacle, which means he can't worship in the presence of God. So he's also isolated from God. Lame, isolated, cut off, broken. All of this is summarized by the Hebrew word for lame. When Ziba tells King David that Bo is lame in both feet, he uses the Hebrew word nakeh, which refers to a lameness of both body and soul. Nakeh describes more than just physical problems. It describes a broken spirit. Wade Burleson is a pastor and blogger who I, <clears throat> who I occasionally read, and he offers an interesting insight into the meaning of this word nakeh. Pastor Burleson has served as a volunteer police chaplain for many years, and he sometimes has to inform families about the suicide of a loved one. And he writes, I go to the scene I take the note the person has left behind. Then I go and I tell the family about the death of their loved one. And as we read these suicide notes, they are filled with nakeh. They are written by people who are broken, broken in spirit. Now, Bo, as far as we know, isn't suicidal, but 
but he's lame in every sense of the word. He is broken. He is not calf. He is at the bottom. And he's been that way most of his life. Here's what's gripping, though. It's never too late to be mended. It's never too late to be rescued and restored by God. And that's what God is going to do for Bo through King David. So David learns about Bo and his situation, and he brings him to Jerusalem. This could be the start of something really good, but we need to understand when the king's men come and get Bo, he wouldn't instinctively be glad. Remember, he went to Lodabar to be in exile, to be, to be safe. He knows nothing about the vow between David and his father. And after all this time, it would be right for him to worry, is King David still threatened somehow by my existence? Is my life in danger? So Bull very likely will approach this meeting with the king with some trepidation, some anxiety. And we see that come out when he meets the king. When Mephibosheth, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. What amazing, generous gifts David has just offered. And notice how Mephibosheth responds. He bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? So Mephibosheth comes into the presence of the king. He stands there before him. David can see that he's afraid. And so he says to Bo, don't be afraid. And he backs that up by making these two incredible offers. First he tells Bo, you're going to get back all of the land that originally belonged to your family. It belonged to King Saul. It became David's by right when he assumed the throne. And yet he's willing to give it up in order to restore good fortune to Bo, to the son of his closest friend. And I'm moved by the fact that David is willing to give up something of great value in order to bless Bo. That's just the first thing. The second thing is this. Bo is always going to have the privilege of eating at the table of the king. And that's an honor that's usually reserved for family members. And it tells us that, that David really meant it when he made his vow to Jonathan, a vow that they and their descendants would be like family. And yet, Bo initially does not respond to these offers with joy, but with a sense of despair and hopelessness. It's normal protocol to act humble in the presence of a king. And if you feel particularly unworthy, you might even call yourself a dog. However, when you label yourself as a dead dog, it's a sign that you are completely Lame. You are nakah. You are without hope. Bo's life has been so empty that he simply cannot accept what David says. 
And and it reminds us that it's not always easy to receive gifts of grace when they're offered to us. It can be hard to receive gifts of grace from other people. It can be hard to receive gifts of grace from God. And yet the whole purpose of grace is to rescue us from our hopelessness so we can be mended. That's what God wants to do for Bo through David. And yet Bo seems to be enveloped in this wall of hopelessness. How can David break through that? He calls Ziba back in. He gives Ziba specific instructions in front of Bo to reinforce the reality of these gifts. And these instructions get through to Bo and he finally realizes that his world is about to dramatically change. Let's see what happens next. Verse 9, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always, always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. As a result of these gifts, suddenly, Bo is a man of means. He's a man of property. He no longer has to live in exile in Debar. He no longer has to depend on the kindness and generosity of Maker to survive. He now can live on his own assets. Ziba's family has been managing this land for a long time. They managed it for Saul. They've been managing it for David. Now they're going to manage it for Bo. And this property is extensive. That's why we're told about Ziba's family and servants. There's 35 people plus Ziba that it takes to manage this property. There's a lot going on. And Bo will be in charge of it all. He'll supervise Ziba. He'll approve decisions about the planting and and the harvesting, and the sale of the crops. He'll ensure that income and expenses are properly managed. Bo will have some meaning and purpose in his life. And even though he now will be able to provide for himself, even though he'll have the means to set his own table full of his own good food, he will be able to eat with the king anytime he wants. He'll be treated like a son of David. And in many ways, this honor is more meaningful than the material wealth he's just received. You see, Bo has been restored to a place of honor in the royal family. He has a seat at the table of the king. It's a gracious act by David. It's gracious because it's generous. And it's gracious because it's risky. You see, if Bo has any sense of envy any sense of greed, 
any wounded pride or lingering hurt that his family no longer controls the throne, then David has just presented him with a golden opportunity. Bo now has access to the king's inner circle. And if he chooses, he can begin to undermine the king. He's now got money and land, assets that he can use as bargaining chips to build up a constituency of people who are loyal to him and not to David. He can misuse David's gift to try to divert power and influence to himself. You see, there's always risk in extending grace. The risk that people will take advantage of it. Grace is an undeserved, generous, risky gift. And David offers grace to Bo, the same way that God offers grace to us. It's a gift with no strings attached. And Bo never misuses it. He simply receives this gift of grace. And he always dines at the king's table in the role of a son. And now that he's away from Lodabar, now that he's back in Jerusalem, he also has access to the tabernacle where he can worship in the presence of God. Seated at the table of the king, worshiping God in the house of God. Bo was broken, and now he's mended. He was isolated, he's been restored. But could we actually say that he's been healed? After all, he's still lame in both feet. And I don't know about you, but that's not the way I want this story to end. You see, I like the fairy tale ending. I want God to miraculously step in and heal Bo's spine and restore his ability to walk, but he does not do that. Bo's story begins and ends with lameness. And yet the lameness at the end is distinctly different from the lameness at the beginning. And this is captured by the fact that Bo's condition in verse 13 is described with a different Hebrew word than the one used earlier. When we first learn about Bo in verse 3, as I said, he's described as nakeh, lame in body and soul. But at the end of this story, after receiving David's great gifts of grace, Bo is described in verse 13 as Piseok, a totally different word. And it means lame only in the physical sense. You see, Bo has been healed. He's been healed in his mind and in his heart and in his soul. God used David's great gifts of grace to heal Bo in the deepest and most important ways. And yes, it's true, he still has feet that don't work. But he has worth, he has value, he has purpose in life, he has access to God, and it's all because of grace. God's grace extended to Bo through David. Because of grace, Bo sits at the table of the king. Because of grace, Bo can be content with what he has, not stew in bitterness over what he thinks he may lack. And he may not have everything he wants. But because of God's grace, he has everything he needs. 
So yes, Bo still is physically lame, but oh, how he has been healed. God has mended him. He, has, he was broken by so much of life. But he was mended and restored by the gracious act of a gracious king who chose to reflect the grace of a loving God. I am so moved by this story. And I believe it's one that's so important for us to understand because it teaches us about what matters most to God. And more than anything, our God wants to have all of his children seated at his table. We, like Bo, have received incredible grace from God. Grace we haven't earned. Grace we don't deserve. Grace that gives us forgiveness and acceptance. Grace that helps us wipe away the stuff of the past. And yes, it leaves scars, but it's dealt with. It's healed at the foot of the cross through Jesus Christ. Because of grace, God mends us. He heals us. And we get a seat at the king's table because we're sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And yet, as we revel in that, we're still scarred. We're still cracked. And Bo's story reminds us of something that is so important. God may not heal our bodies. He may not remove all of our physical infirmities, but He always wants to heal our souls. And if we follow in the footsteps of Bo and we accept the gifts of grace that God brings into our lives, then we can learn to be content in all things. Content with what we have, not bitter about what we think we may lack. And I believe this story invites us to respond in two distinct ways. First, I think there's a great lesson we can learn here from King David. You see, there may be someone in your life or mine who's like Bo. They may be disabled in some way. Maybe they're hurting, isolated, broken. Is there something we can do to draw them closer to God? Can we, like David, extend God's grace to help them be mended? Can we help them find a seat? at the king's table. And second, I think it's highly likely that some of you are carrying bitterness about an area of life where you feel lame. And you may be holding a grudge against God for for not fixing everything in your life the way you want Him to do that. If that's the case, I I believe what Bo teaches us is let it go. Let it go. Lay it at the foot of the cross. That's not easy to do. It may be that you need someone to pray with you about that. And if so, at the conclusion of our service, you can make your way over to the prayer corner. We'll have an elder or two there who would be happy to pray with you and to take that bitterness over an area of perceived lameness and just give it to God. I think all of us need to ask God to help us be like both. Each and every day, we should be thankful 
for the undeserved, unmerited, risky grace God has given to us. And then we should just revel, revel in the joy that we have because we're seated at the table of the king.